Welcome to Educate with Dr. Jefferson, the talk show that makes the connections between research, policies, and practitioners that are too often missing from the American education system. Now, here's your host, Dr. Jonathan Jefferson. Good day, listeners. Welcome to Educate with Dr. Jefferson. I am your host, Jonathan Jefferson. You can learn more about me at my show page on TalkZone.com. Today, we are going to discuss inclusive excellence. Inclusive excellence is a term most often used in the halls of higher education, colleges, and universities. Instead of me trying to define it for you, I will read to you an article titled The Unexpected School. The Unexpected School. Close your eyes and travel with me in your mind's eye. You are walking onto the campus of what has been deemed an excellent public or private school in your city. From what you have read and heard beforehand, the faculty and administrators are top-notch at this school. The students are smart and engaged and go on to do amazing things in their lives and communities. The parents, you have also been told, are extremely proud of this school and are deeply involved in the social, marketing, and financial needs of the institution. Now, as you walk onto the school grounds, you notice something, well, unexpected. The majority of the students at this school are students of color, and as you poke your head into the various classrooms and walk down the hallways, you notice that many of the teachers and administrators at this school are people of color as well. You also see several parents of color on campus, some helping to hang student artwork in the various buildings, some getting on a bus with teachers and students on their way to the local history museum, some contributing as guest teachers in classrooms because their work relates to what students are learning, and some serving on the board of trustees, which is in a monthly meeting with the head of school today. Open your eyes now. You are now back in the city where you live where the purported excellent schools in your area do not look like the one that I, I just asked you to envision. What thoughts and emotions ran through your mind and body as you walked the campus of our unexpected school? Were the scenes I described comforting, or did you experience just a little bit of unease? And did you think that the unexpected school could actually exist somewhere, anywhere in this country? Or did it feel like something in a make-believe time and place? This article was written by Dr. Carolyn Ash, who will be our guest on today's show. Dr. Carolyn Ash is Managing Director of the Ash Consulting Group. Dr. Ash has worked in various capacity, capacities in the profession of education. She has served as a Director of Admission and Financial Aid, Executive Director of the Spirituals Project at the University of Denver, Director of Research and Program Development, and Program Director for the Minority Student Achievement Network, MSAN. Carolyn, welcome to the show. Thank you, and thank you for having me. Well, thanks for being here. I'm excited. I'm excited to have you on the show, and I'm excited to learn more about uh, inclusive excellence. Uh, let's start. You launched the Ash Consulting Group this year, an education consulting firm. What is your firm's focus? Well, you know, our tagline is making great schools greater through inclusive excellence. And the question that usually comes up is exactly what is inclusive excellence? And I really do like the definition that uh, is used in a lot of uh, higher ed circles, which hasn't really trickled down yet to the pre-K uh, or the K-12 through uh, environment yet. And I'm hoping that Ash Consulting Group can really be the, the bridge between those two worlds. But I really like the definition of inclusive excellence that the Center for Multicultural Excellence at the University of Denver uses, and I would love to, to quote that for your listeners. Uh, the center says that inclusive excellence is the recognition that a community or institution's success is dependent on how well it values, engages, and includes the rich diversity of students, staff, faculty, administrators, and alumni constituents. And then this is the part of the definition that I think is most critical. More than a short-term project or single-office initiative, this comprehensive approach requires a fundamental transformation of the institution by embedding and practicing inclusive excellence in every aspect and level of the school 
college, or university. The goal is to make inclusive excellence a habit that is implemented and practiced consistently throughout an institution. And that's really why I formed Ash Consulting Group, is to help not only institutions of higher education, but also the pre-K through K through 12 world, really understand that we're at a a really very critical moment in history where it's not just about the stereotypical diversity work in schools, about increasing numbers of, you know, socially marginalized groups in schools and on campuses. We are at a critical time where we have to go much deeper. Mm -hmm. Now, now many schools, kindergarten through college, have diversity-related initiatives. Do you believe they are striving toward inclusive excellence? You know, I, I think what's happening, I think we're still caught up in trying to bring more people to the table who historically haven't been invited to sit at the table. And while I think that's the critical first step, I think what's really missing in a lot of diversity initiatives around the country um, is really an ability and a willingness on the school's part to look more at things like the school mission or the school climate and culture or the decision-making processes in that school. You know, are, are all the different groups on campus really, do they really have access to all of those different pieces that I just talked about? Or really, you know, are the people that have been invited to the table, are they really just kind of there as guests? you know, at the dinner table, or are they really, you know, uh, involved in some of the critical day-to-day operations and decisions that happen in schools? And I think I think that's where the disconnect is. I don't think schools right now are ready and or willing to go to that next step, and I want to help them get there. Okay. Now, you mentioned uh, schools' missions and philosophies. Oftentimes, what I've observed is that the mission and philosophy looks good, mm-hmm. but is not, not necessarily the practice. Uh, would you uh, would you agree with that or disagree with that? You know, I, I would agree. I think that you know, educators uh, and administrators, on the whole, are you know well intentioned people who got into education because they really do want to, you know do good things in the, in the world, you know, through educating our young people. And so I think the intentions are good, and I think that's why, you know, school mission statements often sound very good. Uh, but I, I think it, it takes a, a deeper level of insight and really kind of a, a willingness to lose control, if you will, to realize that, you know, if we really get to the level of inclusive excellence, that I'm talking about and that so many other people are talking about and writing about, it really means that our schools could look and operate very differently than how they've operated for, you know, years and years and years. And I think that's a very scary prospect for a lot of us in schools. Um, but, again, if we want to bridge the disconnect between, you know, our, our well-intentioned and good-sounding mission statements and what is actually happening on a day-to-day basis, we have to be willing to kind of go through that, that space of, of discomfort and loss of power if everyone is truly going to have an equal voice at the table. Now, you mentioned uh, the fear of losing uh, control, mm-hmm. and that's something I always looked at as the illusion of control because ultimately the students and how they react or choose not to react um, controls the environment. So it's, so it's truly, I believe, the illusion of control. It really is. I mean, you know, I, I think we oftentimes hold on uh, very vigorously to traditions and um, to our ideals of what, you know, we think the school is, um, but... You know, I love in particular talking to students, and I've, you know, done a lot of work with students over the years through interviews and focus groups and been at my most recent job actually being a student advisor. It's amazing how students in particular will really cut to the chase. I mean, they will really kind of lay out for you, um, you know, what school officials and school leaders think the school is, 
and what it really is on a day-to-day basis. And sometimes those two things are very different. Absolutely. In fact, last week I had a a guest mention uh, baby boomers and how we were talking technology and how baby boomers are the ones having or pretty much in control at a school for the most part. And they're the ones having the most issues with technology as opposed to the, as I call them, babies, the present generation who are quite comfortable with with uh, technology. So you have a total disconnect in trying to get technology in the schools when you're dealing with two completely uh, different uh, mindsets. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, we are definitely faced with a generational gap as well. Um, you know, how we as, and I never consider myself to be old, <laughs> but, you know, working with and talking to young people who are, you know, in high school or, or junior high school, just how they how they see the world and how they interact with the world is so very different from how we as adults interact with the world. And I have to say, yeah, I agree with you, and I have to say that their honesty is refreshing. Yes. And this is truly the world that they are inheriting, so it's going to be the world that they they mold, not the world that we believe they should mold. Uh, but let me get off my soapbox. I, I really didn't <laughs> want to go there, but you, you bring up some very interesting uh, speaking points. Uh, so let's get back to Ash Consulting. What kinds of services will Ash Consulting Group provide to schools and other educational institutions across the country? Well, really, we are going to be offering four core services. Uh, the first being what we call an inclusive excellence assessment. And that really is going to be, you know, critical uh, uh, foundational work that we're going to be doing with schools to help them assess uh, where we think they are currently in terms of inclusive excellence. And we'll get at that by conducting interviews and focus groups with all of the various constituency groups, you know, students, families, faculty and staff, alumni. And then we also want to take a look at the institution's key documents, you know, policy statements, anything that really kind of defines uh, in the written word, you know, what the organization, what the institution is about, and the marketing materials. I think that is, that, that is key. You know, I really want to see, and, and my team is really going to want to look at uh, how the school presents itself to its internal community as well as the external community. So the combination of these interviews and focus groups and analysis of documents and marketing materials, we will be able to give the school a very good sense from the very beginning of where they really lie in terms of, you know, their their commitment to inclusive excellence. Um, a second yep. course service, I'm sorry. I was just going to say in that vein, uh, would an example be if you're in a community with 50% or more uh, Latino-speaking or uh, Spanish-speaking mm-hmm. families, mm-hmm. yet all of your material goes out in English, <laughs> would that be an example of a, a red flag with regards to inclusive inclusiveness? Ab- absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and similarly, you know, if if a school is really, you know, um, committed to having all students, I'm sorry, all parents participate in the various activities, you know, uh, in school and, you know, uh, including parent association meetings or PTA meetings, you know, if if the uh, parent's native language, first language is not English, are there translators at these meetings or at these activities? I have seen that come up time and time again, but then, you know, we as a school or educators that I've worked with have, you know, we've scratched our head, you know, I wonder why, you know, certain parents aren't coming. Well, if we put ourselves in their shoes, would we come if we weren't able to, you know, understand what was going on and we didn't see the school really making any efforts towards, you know, helping us bridge that gap? So that's, that's yeah. absolutely a great example. All right. And, and, you, make, and you make a good point. Uh, at this time, we're going to take a break. Okay. Uh, it's a short break, but stay tuned. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome back to Educate on Talk Zone. Here's Dr. Jonathan Jefferson. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back to the show and our discussion with our guest, Dr. Carolyn Ash of Ash Consulting Group. If you'd like to join our conversation, please feel free to call us at 888 
888-463-6748. That's 888-463-6748. We're taking your calls on Talk Zone. Now, uh, Carolyn, uh, I need to, uh, divulge to my listeners the fact that you and I have spent a few years together studying at Seton Hall University. Uh, we yeah. were both, ca- we were both candidates in the same doctorate program. And I know that you have a, 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 a very interesting, uh, a background. And I also know that you are, uh, a proud Denver Broncos fan. <laughs> I I am. I also love the Seahawks, but uh, we we won't tell my my fellow Denver natives. Uh, hopefully, they're not listening. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. So, so Carolyn, tell us more about your background and how you arrived at this work. Well, I am a lifer, as I will be called, um, uh, at an independent school here in Denver, Colorado Academy. Um, so, I attended. Colorado Academy from pre-kindergarten through 12th grade. Uh, started as a precious little four-year-old back in 1973, I believe, and graduated high school in 1987. And I bring that up because it, you know, it's, I don't think what's most important about my background and, you know, schooling is that I went to this, you know, uh, very highly regarded private school in Denver. But really what has informed all of my work since then, you know, since graduating from high school and all of my studies, including the time at Seton Hall, is really understanding uh, at a very personal level what it means to be one of a few students of color in a predominantly white institution and really having to learn, um, along with my parents way back when, how to, how to successfully navigate that institution. So not just academically, but, you know, really to come out of it with mind, body, and soul still intact as a person of color. And as I often say, even to my fellow alum and, you know, former colleagues at Colorado Academy, I am so proud to be, you know, an alum of the school, but I'm equally proud of what Coy and Levy Cunningham, my parents, and little Carolyn Cunningham uh, back then what we brought to Colorado Academy. And so since then, I have, I have been about really wanting schools, whether they be public or private, to really recognize the tremendous benefit that diversity, you know, whether it's racial diversity or socioeconomic diversity, what that does for a school environment. It's not just about providing opportunities to, you know, some kids of color or to some kids who might not be of great means, but it's really looking at what these students and families and even faculty and staff from these different groups, the just tremendous wealth of, of information and pers- world perspectives, you know, that we are bringing to that institution. Okay. Now, you share with me in a conversation we had recently that in your, I believe it was your senior year at the academy, mm-hmm. where you... Uh, began, you know, sharing with your classmates how you felt or your perspective being one of the few um, students of color uh, in your school. And in, in a story you shared with me, you said the conversation was so rich that it kind of continued from class to class throughout the day. Can you share with my listeners this the story you told me recently? Yes, I would love to. So it was interesting. You know, I had been at Colorado Academy, again, like I said, since I was four years old, um, and had grown up with a lot of, you know, these kids since then. Um, but somehow, um, I guess because conversations back then weren't as open about race and diversity and things like that, that students, my fellow, you know, classmates, had not put two and two together why it was, for example, that you know, when there were choir auditions, how it was and why it was that I always chose to audition with, you know, a gospel song or a jazz standard or a song, you know, an R&B song that was on the radio or when we had to choose a topic to write a paper on in, you know, any of our classes, how I always chose a topic that in some way connected to, you know, my history and experience as a person of color. Somehow, I, I guess things didn't click until literally my senior year, and I don't even know exactly how it came up in a class, but 
you know, someone made some comment or asked me a question, and literally all day long, because I tended to have classes with the same group of students, from English class to biology class to history class, I was kind of like the show and tell. And somehow, you know, at the age of 17 or 18, whatever age I was, I was completely comfortable with that because I thought, you know what, if this is my opportunity to educate teachers here and my, you know, my former classmates, my fellow classmates, then I will take this opportunity if it means talking all day long <laughs> about what it means to be a person of color at this school. And it's, I will never, ever forget it. And what I also will never forget is that the first teacher, you know, where the conversation started in her class, that first teacher was so moved by the conversation and the fact that I was willing to have it with my classmates and teachers all day long that when I showed up at school the next day, she had a gift for me. And she was actually the first person in my life, and this was a white teacher, who introduced me to the work of Zora Neale Hurston. And she gave me a collection of her short stories, and the teacher wrote a very moving note, which unfortunately I don't have in front of me, but she wrote a very, you know, uh, grateful note and put it in the front of that book. And I have the book and the note <laughs> in my house to this day. That's awesome. That is awesome. And, you know, I, I, I appreciate the fact that you mentioned that, you know, it happened to be a white teacher because as much as we, uh, like to put race in the corner as if it's a, a taboo topic, it is real, you know, and, and, and we gain more by sharing out. Uh, not too long ago, I had a guest on and I challenged him by asking him, do you think what's most important is the race of the teacher or the expectations of the teacher? Mm. Uh, because in my experience, I was one of those students who was bused to school mm-hmm. and I was bused to a predominantly white school district. And because those teachers had high expectations for me, they were all white. I didn't have black teachers until I was in, in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, but their, their expectations is what led to my success, not the color of their skin. So would you, would you echo that? That is expectations more so than the color of the teacher or, or would you want to go deeper into that and, and, and you know, maybe, maybe bring up some other perspectives? Yeah, you know what? I, I actually, you know, see a, a blending of those two things. I think, you know, based on my experience as well as the experiences um, that have been shared with me or that I've witnessed of particularly students of color in predominantly white schools, you know, I think the high expectations are absolutely paramount. Um, I actually didn't have a teacher of color. I'm sorry. No, actually, I didn't have an African-American teacher until I got to Oberlin College, where I did my undergraduate work. Um, However, I feel like I had some amazing and very motivational, inspiring teachers at Colorado Academy who had the highest of expectations for me. Um, And so, again, I think that's key. However... I really did yearn for, on a daily basis, the opportunity to see reflected in any of my classes someone who looked like me. I mean, I really, really yearned for that. And, you know, as I've worked with students, particularly students of color over the years, um, students are yearning for that as well. And so, you know, I, I do have to say I think it's important to have both uh, in schools, you know, a very racially uh, and otherwise diverse teaching staff. But I don't want that to be an excuse for schools if they don't have that to somehow um, have teachers feel like they can't connect with or it isn't their responsibility to connect with and motivate students, regardless of the race of the student or the teacher. Okay. Now, you had some very interesting education and professional experiences. And I'm fascinated by the fact that you attended a private school from pre-K through 12th mm-hmm. grade mm-hmm. and that you had an opportunity to go back and work at your alma mater. Mm-hmm. Uh, did those experiences factor into the creation of the Ash Consulting Group? They did. I, I think my experiences at CA, as we call it, um, as well as with the Minority Student Achievement Network that you mentioned in your introduction, um, I think the common thread there, even though the... Uh, MSAN schools were public schools, 
in kind of urban, suburban areas all across the country. Um, and Colorado Academy, like I said, is a private school, is an independent school. But what was interesting to me in all of these years of work with these various schools, you know, interesting as well as troubling, I have to say, is hearing very, very capable, brilliant, phenomenal students of color repeatedly talk about how they didn't feel like the schools that they attended were really their school too. Like they were kind of just visitors. That somehow there was just something, yeah, something in, you know, the fabric of the school, the climate of the school, where they really didn't feel like, you know, it was their school. And some students, you know, you can imagine how heartbreaking this was for me as a former high school admission director at my alma mater, to hear students of color tell me, you know, after they got in, well, we know we just got in because, you know, the school needed some more black and Latino kids. I mean, absolutely wow. heartbreaking for me, you know, for the students who I just helped, you know, through the admission process, um, you know, find their way to CA to not see in themselves, um, you know, the brilliance, like I said, and just the amazing qualities that myself and the admission committee saw in them. And so that's when I started saying, wait a minute, okay, so what is it? What is it that they're feeling and experiencing? Experiencing? What is it that we're not doing? And again, what are we not doing in independent schools, predominantly independent schools, and even in public schools uh, in areas where, you know, the quote-unquote good schools are predominantly white that have students of color there? What is it that we're not doing? You know, we've got mm. the numbers there. We've got the, you know, we can check off the diversity list, you know, that we've got African-American, Latino, Asian, Native American students, you know, on the roll, but there, there's a disconnect. They don't truly, mm. a lot of students of color, you know, truly don't feel like they're part of the school community. Wow, that's very, very uh, interesting perspective. I, I personally had never thought of it in that vein or, or asked students that those mm. type of questions that would lead them to respond in that way. Uh, let's Discuss this a little further, but once again, we have to take another break. Uh, once again, it's a short break, but stay tuned. We'll be back with more right after this. And now, more Educate on TalkZone.com. Here's Jonathan Jefferson. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back to the show and our very engaging and intriguing conversation with my guest, Dr. Carolyn Ash, the managing director of the Ash Consulting Group. If you'd like to get in on our conversation, please give us a call at 888-463-6748. That's 888-463-6748. We're taking your calls on TalkZone. Uh, Carolyn, you, you mentioned something very very interesting right before the break. And that is how even with the numbers, you know, of, of students of color in a school, they still don't take ownership of the school as being theirs. And, um, clearly from, from your experience and what you shared with us regarding your alma mater, you certainly feel that that was your school. And also in my experiences, both my neighborhood school and the school I was bused to, to this day, I consider those my schools. So is it, is, has something changed over the generations that has shifted students, uh, feelings concerning their school? You know, I, I have to be honest and say, I'm still trying to put my finger on it, you know, but I know that I have said this phrase more times than I can count in the last four and a half years. Uh, particularly to students of color and families of color, is this is your school too. I mean, that has been kind of my mantra, you know, and reminder. You do realize this is your school too. And it has really taken, I think, that that reminder to let families know that you're not just, you know, students, you're not just guests here. Um, I think, you know, yes, we've, we've done better in schools across the country. Uh, in terms of increasing, you know, the numbers of kids from various backgrounds in different schools. But I think, you know, what is really another thing that's really missing is the formation of community, um, you know. 
And I love it. There's a a quote that I read from one of my Oberlin College professors, uh, who was one of my sheroes in life, uh, the writer, author, feminist, activist, Bell Hooks. And she has written about what she calls beloved the beloved community. And she says that beloved community is formed not by the eradication of difference, but by its affirmation, by each of us claiming the identities and cultural legacies that shape who we are and how we live in the world. And when I read that quote, you know, I really started thinking about how that, you know, really applies to a lot of students in pre-K through 12 and even institutions of higher education that, you know, really I think from their vantage point, they're still trying to navigate and juggle these two different worlds that when they get on school grounds, they really are having to kind of assimilate into, you know, that, that school culture. And somehow there are pieces of themselves and pieces of their, you know, cultural legacies, if you will, and identities that are just not, you know, and it may not even be a spoken thing, but just aren't quite either welcomed or validated or, you know, asked for when they get to school. And so this this juggling of two worlds, I think, is really taxing emotionally and psychologically for kids. And I think that's why there's a sense of, you know, no, I'm I'm just kind of here as a student, but really this is not my, this is not my school. Now, do you believe orientation programs can address this issue? For example, many colleges mm-hmm. have orientation programs for their incoming freshman class, mm-hmm. and some of them are very effective in getting the students to feel like, wow, this is my school, I'm now a part of it. Is that something that you feel can work if structured properly? I think it's, yes, and I think that's very helpful. I know I've done that um, at Colorado Academy. I know that a lot of other schools do it, you know, colleges do it. Um, and that's really what the the goal should be, to let students know, you know, this is your school and that you have, you know, you're part of a, a, a kind of family within a family that's going to continue to lift you up and strengthen you and remind you <laughs> that this is your school. Um, so I think that's one piece. But, again, I don't want to lose sight of the fact that we're talking about, you know, institutional change. And so from, you know, if a school has a board of trustees, from the board of trustee level to the administrator, faculty level to the parent level, kind of back to that original definition that I read uh, of inclusive excellence from the Center for Multicultural Excellence at the University of Denver, it's how are we, you know, as school folk, how are we really embedding diversity and equity and multiculturalism and justice in everything that we do at school? How is it part of the fabric of, again, decision-making and school climate and and who sits at the table, you know, that's the piece. And so I think these orientation programs are just one piece of it, but there's still a lot more work that others in that school or on that campus need to do. It just can't be left to, you know, kind of students of color or students from different backgrounds kind of walking with their heads held high. That's That's a critical piece. But you know, that there are also some other levels, institutional levels that need to be dealt with. Okay. Now, we do have a caller from yeah. Illinois, Jocelyn from Illinois, and she wants to know what other services ASH Consulting provides. Oh, yes, great, and thank you for that question. So in addition to uh, the inclusive excellence assessment that we'll be doing, uh, we will also be working in the area of program and policy development. So working with our clients to revise and or develop programs and policies that really promote inclusive excellence throughout the institution. Um, And also we have expertise uh, in ASH Consulting Group in terms of curriculum development uh, in a wide variety of subject areas from pre-K through, you know, uh, college. And we can help schools to develop curricula that really reflects and celebrates and engages the diversity of the school community. And then lastly, we uh, will be offering what we call thematic lecture series development. And so we have really just a wealth of relationships with speakers across the country. And we can develop for schools really compelling lecture series that 
help schools to explore and deepen, you know, students and faculty members' understanding of various curricular themes. You know, actual people who have lived experiences in certain areas that, you know, would be a great tie to what teachers are trying to do in the classroom. Now, it sounds like there is no institution where uh, inclusive excellence would not fit in. For example, mm-hmm. there are districts in the area of Long Island where I live and work that are predominantly African-American and Latino, mm-hmm. and the inclusiveness, inclusiveness simply changes where the school district might be dominated as far as the Board of Education and the PTA by uh, African-Americans and the the lack of inclusiveness might be the Caribbean students, the Haitian students, the the Latino students. So it's really not a, simply a case of um, a predominantly white institution of having inclusive education with people of color. It's pretty much in any institution. Would you agree with that? I would, and, and that's an excellent point. You know, so whatever diversity is represented, you know, in your school, um, and I'm focusing a lot in this conversation on, on racial, you know, and ethnic diversity, but diversity also in terms of ability or sexual orientation or, um, you know, um, socioeconomic background, but whatever the diversity is of your school, and I really like to think of it as a rich diversity, how is that school really embracing and engaging and valuing that diversity at every level. So you are absolutely correct. Um, It might not be a predominantly white institution, um, but whatever the makeup is of the school, is everyone, uh, you know, really welcome to be at the table and not just be at the table as a guest, as I keep saying, but really, Mm -hmm. you know, able to, (laughs) if we kind of go further with the analogy, you know, be able to determine what the menu is for the meal, <laughs> what kind of music might be played at the table. You know, that that's really the level that I want schools to get to. Okay. And now going back, I want to tie the beginning of the show um, uh, to the last quarter of the show. Uh, regarding the excerpt I read at the top of the show, uh, why did you call the school you wrote about the unexpected school? Great question, and thank you for that. You know, I, as I was really thinking about this work as, as I was getting ready to launch Ash Consulting Group, um, you know, I, I really speculated that many of us today probably can't fathom schools that are excellent, quote-unquote excellent, by whatever indicator, you know, we want to imagine, that it might be hard for us to fathom schools that are predominantly not white or predominantly not, you know, wealthy, where the students, parents, faculty, administrators are brilliant, you know, where they're doing good things, where there is good learning, you know, not just schooling, but good learning going on. And I really wanted to kind of put that out in the open and then leave the reader with what I assumed would be some little bit of discomfort. And I think that discomfort is necessary and critical in this work. Um, I often like to say that if we want to get to the roses, you know, to be able to smell the roses in this work, we're going to have to deal with some thorns as well. And I think that's one of the thorns, that just as a nation, we have kind of have selective, (laughs) you know, uh, historical amnesia, I think, You know, there were schools that existed long before, you know, integration in this country, and many of these schools exist today still, where the students are brilliant, the teachers and, you know, other administrators are brilliant, and they may not be white. I mean, just to kind of break it down like that. And so I think if we will embrace that history and embrace that we can have schools where the people, you know, who are running the schools and who are living and, you know, working in that schools are black and brown, for example, that that will really give us some insight back to something I said originally into the value that these students and families and faculty bring to any institution, any educational institution, that it's not just you know, these families and kids and faculty should be just glad, you know, 
to have access to these seats at table now in, you know, in, in schools where maybe they didn't a long time ago. But it is absolutely of benefit to every single educational institution in this country to have rich diversity. Okay. Um, I agree with you, and um, excellent, excellent reply. I'm curious, uh, did you have an opportunity to listen to President Obama's State of the Union speech last night? Mm, I did. I did. Now, in that speech, do you remember or do you recall? I, by the way, did not get a chance to listen to it. I did, I did read excerpts afterwards, but because we're speaking about inclusive excellence in uh, organizations, was any elements of his speech speaking to inclusive excellence um, as a nation or as a as a, a working community, do you believe? You know, there, there were a couple pieces that stood out uh, for me. One, I have to say that I was um, very excited to hear the president really stress the importance of high-quality pre-K education for all students. Um, Given that I had such a rich experience in pre-kindergarten, I know that it absolutely, you know, uh, was such a springboard for me educationally throughout my, you know, entire schooling life. So I'm very excited about that. And for me, the you know, that ties into inclusive excellence because, you know, it ties into the conversation about opportunity and access, which is a critical, you know, first start, first step. Absolutely. Well, um, once it, again, excuse me, uh, Dr. Ash, I already cut you off. Uh, once again, we need to take a, a brief break. Uh, we'll be right back right after this. listening to educate on talkzone.com back to jonathan jefferson welcome back welcome back welcome back to the show and our continued conversation with dr carolyn ash of ash consulting group uh dr ash just before the break we were you were sharing with us some of your uh inclusive excellence insights with regards to uh, President Obama's speech. Uh, I'm sorry I had to cut you off before the break, but uh, go ahead and finish your, your thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, there was another piece, and I was all over Facebook and Twitter and <laughs> email and, and texting people because I thought maybe I missed it. Um, and everybody kind of had the same reaction that I did. I did hear the president mention something about, you know, the achievement of, uh, young men of color, and I perked up and wanted to know exactly what, you know, proposal he was raising or what his, his comments were going to be about that, because I thought, I mean, this has got to be, you know, one of the most critical times in history is to hear the President of the United States talk about young males of color and their education uh, here, and somehow I, I don't know exactly where where he went after that or, or, or what the purpose was of that phrase or, you know, wh- what he was starting to, to say. But um, I haven't had a chance to, you know, find the transcript online yet, you know, and see exactly what I missed. But I, I would love for the president to get back to the conversation that maybe he was going to have regarding that. Um, okay. You know, what he says at the top could really, you know, trickle down in a good way to you know, schools all across this country, and I really personally and professionally want to hear what he has to say and what his thoughts and proposals are regarding the achievement of students of color, particularly young males of color. Absolutely, and it's understandable. I, I've had a lot of success getting transcripts of, of speeches from uh, Real Clear Politics, realclearpolitics.com, often, almost immediately, has the okay. transcripts verbatim of uh, the president and other um, public figures. Great. So maybe that will help you, is what I'm getting <laughs> Thank at. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. now, now, Carolyn, I can see that you are, this work is very personal to you. Um, what, what motivates you to strive forward? Because it certainly isn't easy work. No, it is an easy work. Um, and, you know, I, I think I would say that I have seen with my own eyes and heard with my own ears the personal sacrifices that 
families are making today uh, for the sake of, you know, a high-quality education. And oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes that means that parents are sending their precious babies to schools where the people don't look like them or the culture of the school is very different from the culture of their of their home life and their community life. And there is a psychological and emotional price, at least a potential psychological and emotional price um, that families are paying and students are paying to do that. And that is, you know, that's where it crosses the line for me between professional and personal. That That's very personal to me. And I would love to get to a point, and I would love for Ash Consulting Group to help, to help schools get to a point where we never, ever hear any student of any background say that this really doesn't feel like my school, that I'm just here because, you know, I was kind of part of a quota. They checked me off the list, and that's why I'm here. This really isn't my school. I would love to get to a point where we never, where no educator, no administrator ever, ever hears that again. That's some, that's that's powerful. And, you know, I before I ask my next question, I just want to share. Um, you mentioned the home environment and how that is so um, contrary too often to the environment they're being sent to school in. Mm-hmm. And I know one of the things that motivated me is, of course, I like you, I grew up, you grew up and went to school in the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a slightly different time. But what was big in our culture, especially here in New York, before it spread all over the world, was hip hop. Because before mm-hmm. the first hip hop records were made, we had street parties and, you know, there were hip hop artists there and DJs. But everything was, for the most part, positive. And mm-hmm. it was looked upon positively if you succeeded academically, if you took care of yourself uh, and had good character. And there were to this day, there are still hip hop lyrics that I repeat to myself that that keep me moving forward because they were so positive. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, Run DMC, who became the first big mega um, hip hop group, mm-hmm. you know, they they had one of the lines in one of their songs is, you know, since Kenny Garden, I acquired the knowledge that after 12th grade, I'd go straight to college. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's something you're rapping to yourself as a kid. So and you think that to be accepted and to be cool, I need to also go to college. Mm-hmm. And um, and I have other examples of le- of that um, from from hip hop. Mm-hmm. So um, do you think that what's inspiring kids today or what kids gravitate toward today does not have that same positive impact that it had on that that what I gravitated toward when I was a child? You know, it was a positive impact on me. Do you think that the negative influences that they gravitate toward are creating the biggest problem? Hmm, that's a great question. You know, I maybe kind of going back to my um, psychology background. You know, my um, undergraduate degree is in psychology, and I guess I, I, I approach that topic by saying that young people, just like you know anyone. They're looking for belonging. They're looking for a place where they feel validated. And so if they don't get it in places where we as adults think they should be getting it, they're going to get it somewhere. And I I always kind of, you know, when I have conversations like this with other adults, I tend to put the onus on us, you know, to really be better listeners to our young people and to be more responsive to their needs. Um, because, again, just like any human, we're going to gravitate towards whatever we think, you know, is going to make us feel important and validated and, and worthy. And if we're not doing it in the schools or if we're not doing it, you know, in uh, religious institutions and churches, if we're not doing it in homes, you know, kids are going to get it wherever they need to get it from to, you know, feel whatever, you know, uh, emptiness or or need for validation, you know, that they're dealing with, they're going to get it somewhere. And I would just hope and pray that, you know, we as adults and mentors and leaders in the community and in schools will be the ones that they flock to for validation. That's a, a very good point. And, and 
and your point about the home environment, uh, I didn't want mean to make light on it using hip hop, but mm-hmm. because certainly some of my influence was the fact that my mother um, read novels every day, sometimes mm-hmm. multiple novels at the same time, and my father read periodicals and newspapers every day, and the house mm-hmm. was inundated with literature. Right. You know, so you know, and 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 succeeding in school was an expectation. You know, that was your job <laughs> as <laughs> exactly. a child. So uh, we only have a couple of minutes left, but um, let me give you an opportunity to share um, those who inspired you. You know, there are so many heroes and sheroes that I have in my life, but I, I have to say that I always go back to three key people, and that's my mom and my dad and my maternal grandmother, who was like a third parent, and they all taught me to strive for excellence, in everything that I did, and they taught me to hold my head up high in every situation, in every environment, no matter who was in the room. And maybe most important, they taught me that my life was really not my own. Uh, so the formation of Ash Consulting Group, you know, really, I guess, is meant to be because I learned very early on that, you know, every single opportunity that I got in life, it wasn't just for me. It was for my community and for those young people who would come after me. Excellent. Let's so let's I let's am. end it right. Let's end it right there. <laughs> okay. That's a perfect way to end it. Okay, we have been speaking with Dr. Carolyn Ash, managing managing director of Ash Consulting Group. To learn more about Dr. Ash and the Ash Consulting Group, visit their website at ashconsultinggroup.org. Carolyn, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure having you. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening to Educate with Dr. Jefferson. Tune in next week as we continue to tackle the truth behind schoolhouse doors.